Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. <laughs> hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. So excited to hang out with y'all today. We're recording a couple of pretty exciting, if I can say so myself, podcasts, and I am super excited to post them and hear y'all's feedback. A couple things you might recognize acoustically in this space. Yes, I'm in a different space than normal. Ceiling's a little higher. Definitely a little less muffling as we get into hardwood floors <laughs> rather than um, my softer wood at home. I am on a trip to the U.S. and so excited to be here. Also, I'm very, very allergy, not sure what's going on, but in any case, I'm here. We're talking today about a book I really enjoyed from one of my favorite living authors, Barbara Borland's The Force of Such Beauty. This is her third book that she's published. Her first book, I'll Eat When I'm Dead, was published in 2017. I read it and reviewed it uh, about a year and a half ago, if memory serves me right. And Fake Like Me, which was published in 2019. I reviewed that for Horrifying Classics 2021. Super enjoyed that. That book blew Horrifying Classics out of the water. And it was something that um, just turned me on to Borland's work and following her in just a more general sense. Um, I've read a couple of her nonfiction articles in preparation for this episode, and those have been really thought-provoking for me as well. So she's certainly a writer that I'm keeping tabs on and have no reason to stop keeping tabs on for the future, especially as her fourth book is coming out, forthcoming from uh, Dutton, which is a publishing house. Um, so big stuff in Barbara, Bo Barbara Borland's life. Um, Force of Such Beauty, the third novel, which we'll review today, was released in 2022, I think in late sort of November um, is the month that sticks out in my mind. The fourth book, which is again forthcoming, is called Fields and Waves. There's another book by that title, which I learned uh, from a quick Google search, that is not that book, it's from a female living author. <laughs> The LA Review of Books um, said something about Barbara Borland's avoir so far, her, her repertoire, um, which really stuck with me and I think rings true for my experience of reading her books as well. Um, and they said that each book is a transformative story of a woman. And it's a lot of these books deal with themes around women. Of course, beauty being one of them. Um, beauty is a theme that plays very centrally in all of the books that I've read from her, so all of her published books. Um, in the first book, I'll Eat When I'm Dead, very clearly this ostensible, stereotypical view of beauty um, being sort of tested at the fore with all of these fashion mongrels and um, people, young women especially, uh, which pretty much play the biggest role in all three novels. Um, being tested um, in a more metaphoric sense as to 
the limits and the extents and how much they're willing to sacrifice for beauty and what beauty actually means when a lot of other things such as health for example are stripped away so um i'll eat when i'm dead very like immediately touching book i remember like it touched me to the quick reading it um, and all of her books for me at least are books that i read in like a day <laughs> they're just so eminently readable as well the second book which is actually the first book that i read from her um, also just so poignant and touching um, the second book is more of a thriller than the other two it has a lot of you know sort of quick high points and then there's a big culmination um, and that book uh, is about an artist, a visual artist, and she is navigating this world um, that's not super friendly to people like her. And I think this is a theme that we see in all three books, is that there's sort of this female character, this leading female character who's an outsider in this otherwise, you know, extremely competitive, um, elite world, um, whether it's the fashion industry, whether it's um, royalty, as we see in this book. And so I think that review from the LA Review of Books, which is linked in the show notes at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the notes for this episode, is a great resource just to get to know the tone and style of Borland's work thus far a little better. Another super interesting article I read, I was just trying to get a good summary um, bird's eye viewpoint of this author, especially as we're continuing to review more and more books from her. I want to get some more of her biographical details in order, at least in my own head, so that when we're talking about Borland, we can talk about um, things that are deeply relevant to the types of, of stories that she's crafting. Uh, and one nonfiction piece, when um, I was researching sort of the other work that she's put out into the world, short form work especially, um, one piece is from Grazia Magazine, which is a UK fashion magazine, as far as I know. It's a UK magazine, it's called Grazia. And it's called What Happens When You Stop Trying to Be Beautiful? And it was published in 2017, um, around the time of her first book. And I'm just going to excerpt from this article um, because it was very, very revealing in terms of the types of themes that we see in her broader works. So this is starting at the beginning. Quote, Several years ago, one of my close friends admitted to me that she prioritized Botox above her rent, because if she didn't, she was afraid of getting fired for being ugly. Naturally, I understood. Actual years of my life had been overshadowed by the pursuit of beauty. Like many women, I spent countless hours turning compulsively through women's magazines like this one, learning the invisible rules and regulations, imagining myself in the clothes on the page and painted in the makeup to match. What a joy to feel those glossy pages beneath my fingers, to see broken eyeshadows and smeared lipsticks and the upended handbag contents of a woman so wealthy we would likely never set foot in the same building unless it was an airport. But she's trying too to be beautiful, I'd think, and that would be sweet comfort. I'm not alone in this. The obsession with our exteriors, whether that means wearing a full veil for modesty or having our labias trimmed in a cosmetic surgeon's office or both, is a universal rule of adaptation among women. 
unquote. And so Borland continues in this same vein, sort of unpeeling the different layers of beauty um, and this sort of journey in her own life as well. Um, and it struck me insofar as being able to relate to the environment that she might have grown up in or the different cultural or other narratives, personal narratives perhaps, that she had been fed. And it really reminded me of this book that I read earlier this year. It's called The Ugly History of Beautiful Things by Kelleher. And it's a book that's become increasingly relevant to me and my story as well, um, thinking about beauty because I am going down the road of possibly getting married. And a lot of these sort of scripts, cultural, familial, and otherwise, are starting to pop up as my partner and I get to the stage where we're going to throw this big party <laughs> for everybody that we know. Um, and thinking especially about the engagement ring, which we're in the process of designing, um, thinking about the history of stones, of why stones, why certain stones are worth certain prices and others aren't, why sourcing of stones becomes so important, the colors of them, um, the cuts of them, etc, etc. Um, and I've gotten really into the history behind all of these different uh, aspects about beauty that our society values. Um, and in The Ugly History of Beautiful Things, there's a deep dive into a lot of, well, not a deep dive, but there's definitely a review of a lot of these uh, objects that society, at least Western society, really, really values. Things like silk, porcelain, pearls, um, mirrors, you know, and a lot of that uh, resonated deeply with me as I started going through this own journey with engagement and wedding, which is so wonderful. So it definitely gave me food for thought. Let's get into some plot about this particular novel, The Force of Such Beauty. So it starts out um, with just this amazing like series of images. Um, and I read this book several, several months ago, so not all of it is completely fresh in my mind, but I do remember like these images of this powerful South African runner who was the fastest woman in the world, um, ran the Olympics, etc. She takes a fall when she's practicing back in South Africa, and it's a bad fall. It's a fall so bad that she shatters her face, she shatters her teeth, a lot of her bones need to be reordered, and it's the sort of final straw for looking at a condition where she was basically running her body into the ground. And so a lot of this injury, not only with regard to the physical healing and things that need to be going on for the rest of her life, it's all about this identity change for her. And the identity change proves to be foundationally upsetting for the rest of her life, which we do unfortunately see the end of her life in this book. She's finding her way, so she moves to 
Europe and she's basically living off of a contract with sort of the latest sponsor and the sponsor is generously paying for everything including her rehabilitation so before she moves to Europe she's in this rehabilitation center and meets a handsome dashing young man named Finn um, and Finn is also recovering from injuries of his own. It's a very exclusive center, so you can imagine that Finn is part of the Upper Estuchano Society in some way. He seems to know a lot of the other patients there, for example. Um, and they end up having a conversation that changes the course of both of their lives. So, our main character eventually moves to Europe again with some friends, starts to try to reinvent herself, and it's a it's off to a very shaky start, like, throughout the first, like, third-ish of this novel, um, where she's experimenting with things that her career previously had not allowed her to experiment with. So, for example, drinking and parties and um, being in love and, you know, these sort of typical hallmarks. And she's using these big behavior changes as a way to sort of start and get herself back on her feet, try to find a new ground zero if that's possible. One of the more striking changes after her rehab, by the way, is that her face gets reconstructed and she ends up, after all of these surgeries, being breathtakingly beautiful. So she has these beautiful cheekbones and, you know, the contours of her face are all right for this sort of classic beauty. Uh, except she doesn't care about particularly being beautiful. She wants to be strong and she wants her body to be able to perform. And there's this huge discrepancy between what other people perceive and see versus what she would like to accomplish with her physicality. And so... A lot of this first third of the novel, too, is reimagining re and reconstructing her relationship with uh, others, especially with men. As men start to perceive her as, you know, instead of this, you know, strong, almost threatening presence to this presence who can be manipulated, constrained, um, outrun, which is, in one word, devastating. A whole series of events leads to Finn and our main character, Caroline, meeting again. And after a very, very short window of courtship, Finn proposes and they're set to marry. So Finn ends up being the leader of a fictional country called Lucomo, and Lucomo has several main languages that they have to speak as citizens and you have to have a certain income level there's no homelessness it's sort of this dream country that's under this like almost oligarchy of total control and total constraint um, and it's this very picturesque beautiful place quote-unquote problemless um, and at the center at the sort of kernel of this place is a deep seated bed of uncertainty. And so with everybody who's there, there's sort of this facade that becomes extremely toxic to Caroline as she continues to live there. Um, but they have all these official languages like French and I believe Italian and English and 
they're very diplomatic and you know people there live just sort of quote-unquote worry-free and so there's this like almost veil across this place and it takes Caroline quite a long while to start to demystify how fake and insidious not only the place is but the people in the place are and so it it's a love story this book or this sort of narrative but it's also a love story that turns very bad because the sort of great love that they experience in the broader world once Caroline moves to Lacomo and there's the mother-in-law to contend with there's you know a lot of fertility struggles that she has to contend with um, there's contractual agreements because she's marrying into royalty and has to produce heirs in order to gain her rights there's sort of this it almost seems like at least to me when I was reading it that she never found that base zero when she was in Europe trying to reinvent herself before she got married and got sucked into this situation and so there was no sort of sense of balance before she was sucked into this new marriage into this new life um, and although outwardly again there's this like huge theme of outward inward contrast in this book although outwardly she seems much healthier than before she seems like you know with help of the Lucomo sort of doctors she's able to start gaining strength again start gaining a little bit weight back in the right places again and things. The sense of outward health, radiance, beauty, that's not mirrored from the inside. She's very mentally unwell for most of this book, um, and that um, comes out in a lot of these different episodes, which we'll talk about shortly. So one key thing that I noticed in Caroline and Finn's relationship is their just inability to communicate beyond sort of these basic things. They often have to go through, you know, third parties and things and, you know, in terms of, they, they just never find common ground. And without that common ground, they're just talking at each other and then the words kind of go through the other person. Um, it is just, it's a devastating unraveling to witness as a reader. Um, and this is one aspect that um, contributed to my understanding of the book because I heard as soon as it came out that this is Barbara Borland's sort of most complex, most ambitious novel. Um, and I think that in some ways it is. And in one aspect, or at least in one respect, this novel has sort of these relational levels that are much more complex than her other novels. We get a lot more like inner dialogue versus outer, um, you know, paparazzi and things like that in, in the first novel. The second, there's a lot more like retrospection, like are the things I'm seeing real, but there's not a lot of like outside exchange other than the things that the main character sees versus doesn't see, for example, and there's a lot of sort of interpretation going on. Here we have that real relational level, and there's a juggling of so many different characters, for example, that does make this, at least this plot, this construction, a lot more complex than her other work, in my opinion. 
Um, and so I really enjoyed this relational complexity with Finn and Caroline and as a reader trying to figure out, okay, why isn't this working? <laughs> because they're two, you know, fabulously smart, attractive people and yet they have this fundamental failure to communicate with each other. Um, and some of that seems to be lack of effort, um, but also just seems to be like this baseline stubbornness, um, especially, okay, on the part of Caroline for sure, but also on the part of Finn, um, and this, this warring of tradition versus something new, someone new, which happens to be Caroline, somebody basically from the broader public, doesn't speak the national languages, but, you know, is beautiful, is smart, knows how to think and work on her feet. And so, um, in that sense as well, I think what's interesting about this novel, and I think, you know, to a certain extent the other two as well, um, is that it juggles a lot of these, like, historical components. Caroline, um, as mentioned in the post-novel author thoughts on this book, um, is an amalgam of many different princesses, including, for example, Princess Diana. Footnote here, there's a great movie called Spencer, which I watched several, several years ago, um, starring Kristen Stewart, of all people. Um, other people from my generation who know Twilight will know Kristen Stewart from that role. Um, but fascinating, fantastic movie, highly recommend. Um, but if you think about Spencer, the movie, and sort of this role that Diana plays in it, um, that's the kind of archetype that we're talking about here with Caroline. This person who is thrust into a situation they don't totally understand at first. And it's through this sort of complex confusion that they start to build patterns of resistance that are maladaptive, right? So with Diana, it was her eating, for example. That's one. Anger outbursts, things like this. With Caroline, um, she is constantly trying to run away. There's a lot of other restriction and things going on here. Her health continues to be quite bad. She continues to have flare-ups and things of this nature, not taking care of herself. Um, she has some insomnia, things like that going on. Um, but yeah, she tries to run away and she's just not able to, ultimately. Um, there's this constant sort of like almost like her body's trying to catch up with her soul. I guess her soul's just not there. It's just, just constantly trying to escape this situation that she unknowingly succumbed herself to. And wrapping up the plot summary here, this situation just ends poorly. She produces two heirs for Finn, for the family bloodline, um, and then she ends up um, escaping to the best of her ability, you know, living a bit outside of the castle and, you know, separating herself from Finn. Um, but then she dies of mysterious circumstances and there's um, this constant question mark left at the end of her life. It's like, could she have done anything to prevent this? Why did it have to end this way? Let's talk about some characterization. So I will say Caroline was a bit of an enigma to me because um, I don't know if I've met anyone quite like Caroline. She's definitely a, a very touchable character, like she's very, she's constructed in a very realistic way. Um, but yeah, a little bit 
sprightly <laughs> to me. Um, she's just somebody who's, he was so young and had talent early on that she just, you know, for, okay, I keep making these puns, but ran with. And, you know, she's naive in that way of, she was so young, she didn't have time to have any, you know, maturational, emotional development, for example, or, you know, a lot of these sort of people skills or um, cultural references or things like that, she kind of loses in um, the pursuit of greatness with her running. Um, and one thing that struck me about Caroline was that she's sort of this like almost unguided person up until she goes to Lucomo and then she has all the guidance she would ever need and there's this like sort of influx of you know guidance everywhere and like opinions everywhere um and that's that's a big shift for her as well so it's it's like this almost a lot of like identity and characterization for her ends up occurring throughout the development of this novel um, and not the least of which is sort of due to the influx and diminishment of guidance throughout her journey. And I would say that transformation plays a huge role in this book in terms of the thematic content. The transformation of, Caroline, of Caroline's character, as well as Finn's character throughout the book, he becomes so like hard and brittle as the book progresses, which is, you know, a realistic image, but also devastating. Um, you know, transformation of Caroline's body, especially as her body sort of adapts to these new roles, starting with athlete to, you know, this sort of healing patient to a mother, for example, um, to somebody who's constantly just sort of this stereotypical female form. And there's another character in the book, who is Caroline's friend and, um, well, sort of, sort of friend, <laughs> this older friend from back when Caroline has just started running when she's a child. And this friend ends up being um, Caroline's lawyer and sort of her personal attorney and helps facilitate things like the separation and um, a lot of Caroline's other you know, legal matters, including her marriage, for example, as well. So um, she ends up playing an increasingly large role in this sort of subversion of what's happening at Lucomo. Um, and especially at the end, there's sort of this letter that the lawyer writes to the kids, um, sort of speaking about Caroline, how she was before, like a little bit, that's kind of what I got the sense of, at least couple months out from reading the book again um but you know leaving this sort of last measure of doubt from Caroline through her lawyer um and she ends up also kind of playing a pivotal role in the book just because she's so clever as well she's um you know just quite witty and she's somebody who like anybody would want to have on their side, especially going through the difficulties that Caroline goes through. So that was another character I wanted to quickly highlight as we get into the remainder of the episode.
I'll get into some of my last thoughts about the book before we get into some quotes that I'll read from the novel. Um, one thought that I had is that this is just you know, really strong writing coming from Borland. Um, I will say in terms of the thematic content and just in terms of the like my personal reader's enjoyment perspective, I think her second book, Fake Like Me, still is at the top of my list. Um, that's a book that I frequently gift and constantly talk about, <laughs> even like two, three years after reading it. Um, I've only read it once too, so you can kind of tell the impact it's made on me. Um, still though, I really enjoy the complexity of this novel. Um, I'm enjoying sort of thinking about, okay, I'm going to keep reading Borland's work <laughs> as long as she's, you know, still publishing and um, really looking forward to it. So, um, and I, I have also enjoyed sort of the evolution of her writing. Like this book, again, just has such strong writing. It's enjoyable to read. And there's, you know, points in, in the text in which I have to pause because it's just so, it, like, you know, it's like a gut punch. It really hits you as a reader. Um, and I think, you know, another comment towards the ambition of this book, like there's some like world building and things that have to take place and that does take space in this novel. There's, it's a bigger novel um, than, you know, some of the other works, especially that I've read recently that are newer published books, uh, novels, but I would say, you know, it doesn't lose anything for the world building. I think it makes it a really strong this sort of fantastical meshing of reality and this fantastical world that Caroline finds herself in. Um, and it's very, very realistic, despite these sort of fictional elements. Like, I had to actually look up whether Lukoma was a country. I was like, did I, like, sleep during geography class or something? But no, it's, it's fictional. Um, and there's something that I was kind of having in the back of my mind throughout the novel, which is that, you know, beauty is cultivated, it's seen, and it's found, you know, and those are three dimensions of beauty that I would highly recommend keeping in the back of your mind if you choose to pick up this read. Let's talk about three quotes from the novel. I'm going to start chronologically in order here, starting with page 128. Vines rocketed from the ground, snaked across the walls, and stitched themselves to the ceiling, becoming living chandeliers that descended every few feet. On their ropey tendrils, porcelain flowers burst forth in eternal, in eternal bloom, light bulbs twisting into place behind their puddles. Ceramic and jewels launched themselves from vitrines, entwining themselves in the sky above our heads to form a crowded aviary packed with jeweled birds. Ascending on feathers dipped in liquid gold, blinking, beady, sapphire eyes, the birds turned to glass. Great fireplaces, crackling against the winter air, burned like forges. Their smoke plumed out along the corridors, wrapping us in a lilac-shaded fog that smelled of burnt satyr and fresh-cut vanilla pods. The force of such beauty is meant to destabilize a person. I was no exception. Unquote. So that's a... That's the title quote from the novel, page 128. This is page 284, talking about Finn and Caroline's relationship. Quote, The past five years had utterly distilled us. Finn was the same person that he'd been when we met and when we married. But I'd grown, 
as six people one after the other. I divided and subdivided into pieces as his understanding of me, his empathy for my experiences subdivided too. I felt often that it came down to one problem. Finn remained as an individual while I became a group. He no longer understood me and in turn, I resented his independence." Unquote. Yeah, that's a really strong paragraph there describing sort of the thoughts about what's going on in their relationship. And a last quote from page 342. This is when Caroline has a lot of mental shifts and she starts being extremely done with the situation and she has sort of these symptoms of being mentally unwell especially starting to rise up and rise up and rise up. Um, short quote, but very powerful. Quote, I saw, at last, Roland was not his aide, but his jailer. His mother was never his mother. She was his boss. I was never his wife. I was his useful idiot. Unquote. So that wraps up our episode on The Force of Such Beauty by Barbara Borland. We've been to a lot of <laughs> different places on this podcast, but I'm excited um, to have reviewed this book with you all. Um, super great read. I would recommend Borland's work. All of her novels are fantastic. Um, and I'm looking forward to the fourth one, forthcoming, hopefully next year. All right, y'all. I'll see you soon and hope you have a lovely holiday season and a happy new year. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.